I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. You're listening to the LRB podcast. I'm Mary Wellesley, and welcome to this Close Readings Fusion episode. I'm delighted to be joined today by Mark Ford to talk about something I've been really interested in for a while, namely the medieval as it appears in Thomas Hardy and in the wider Victorian imagination. Mark has written an excellent book about Hardy called Thomas Hardy, Half a Londoner, and has another book coming out on Hardy soon. Is that right, Mark? That's correct. It's called? Woman Much Missed, Thomas Hardy, Emma Hardy, and Poetry. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to answer all my Hardy questions, ill-informed as they will be. Uh, Absolute pleasure, Mary. Delighted to be here. Listeners are probably aware that Mark is normally heard in conversation with Seamus Perry. They're currently doing a series together called The Long and Short, about 19th and 20th century short stories and long poems, which is part of the LRB's Close Readings podcast subscription. And I'm doing a series at the moment with Irina Dumitrescu called Medieval Beginnings, which is also part of the Close Readings subscription. More details at the end of this episode. And I wanted to bring these two worlds together because I had a baby relatively recently and through the long feeds, which take up rather a lot of time, I was listening to the audiobook of Far From the Madding Crowd and I hadn't read it for, I think, 18 years and I just loved it so much coming back to it. And it struck me how much Hardy is a kind of arch nostalgist and how much he's in love with the world of the past and I love the way he depicts these lost worlds with such delight and it felt to me like that was a lot of what I love about medieval literature it's these these lost worlds which you can half access but also can't really and these texts become the kind of windows into them. I suppose for Hardy it's interesting because in being, as you say, in love with the lost world, he was not alone, that the Victorians were obsessed with the Middle Ages and his own exploration or, of medieval tropes or the references to, to the Middle Ages that you get in both his fiction and his poetry very much kind of coalesced with the ways in which in the mid-19th century the Victorian medievalism was incredibly popular. And it sort of it goes back to the 18th century that it, it comes out of some of the ways in which the Gothic novel uh, developed and became popular and Sir Walter Scott, the laird of Abbotsford with his kind of medieval castle. So the roots of 19th century medievalism go back to the sort of late 18th century, but they became really part of popular culture, particularly in the Victorian uh, period. And um, 
all aspects of culture as well. So not only, obviously, poems like Idols of the King by Tennyson, which was one of the best-selling poems of the entire century, or The Lady of Shalott, some of our listeners will know. But of course, the Gothic revival was the dominant mode of architecture uh, throughout the 19th century and hardy trained as a Gothic architect. So the, the sort of the fusion, if I can use that word, between his own, um, I mean, in some ways, very modern consciousness that Hardy was approached by many of his readers as somehow symbolising modernity. And he has a phrase in Tess of the D'Urbervilles about how she is suffering the ache of modernity. So there's one aspect of Hardy that, that makes him seem very, very much kind of, you know, a forward-looking writer who is presaging what it's like to live after people have stopped believing in God, um, to take the most obvious example. But there's this other equally strong pull in him, as you say, towards the past, towards the ways in which particular cathedrals or uh, stories from from the Middle Ages uh, have a huge kind of resonance for him. And that kind of tension, I, I guess, is one of the things we'll be exploring today. Yeah, so I recently read that The Life of Thomas Hardy, which is this posthumously published biography of Hardy that's allegedly written by Florence Hardy, his his second wife, but actually, as far as I understand, scholars now think that really mainly he wrote it. Is that right? Yes. I yeah. mean, he, he wrote it in the third person. She typed it up. Uh, all but the last couple of chapters, which were written by Florence after he died, uh, were authorised by him, yeah. And I think I'm right that the first chapter is called Early Life and Architecture. So this idea that kind of architecture is so much part of his early life and, and kind of central to his his early development. Completely. Um, uh, I mean, he left school at 16 and was apprenticed to John Hicks in Dorchester. He would walk in from Higher Bockhampton to Dorchester each day, getting up at four o'clock and um, reading Virgil um, and Ovid uh, in the original. Uh, he was an autodidact. But uh, Hicks was a uh, was specialised in Gothic architecture, and uh, so did the employer Blomfield, whom he worked for in London from 1862 to 1867. And Hardy was certainly um, up until the sort of his mid-twenties, had not lost his faith. And Gothic architects were motivated by kind of religious idealism. The whole of the Gothic revival was a way of rejecting some of the manufactured aspects of the industrial world in which Hardy was living and connecting with this kind of idea of purity, of some kind of vanished... Uh, idealism and religious belief, um, which he sort of lost around 1865. His faith began to wane. But the Gothic architects were very much motivated by the notion that Christianity needed this influx um, and that Gothic architecture, Victorian Gothic, somehow answered to this idea of of the search for kind of spiritual meaning in in an age dominated by laissez-faire capitalism and industrial processes and so on. So to be a Gothic architect was was not a kind of neutral thing. It often connected with, with, with the individual's faith. OK, so can you just talk a little bit more about what this thing, the Victorian Gothic, is? I mean, where does it come from? How does it fit in a kind of broader historical context? I mean, I'm particularly interested in perhaps a sort of a larger political slash national context for it. Yes, I mean, the, the most famous proselytizer for the Gothic was John Ruskin, who loved the idea of the Gothic as opposed to classical architecture or Egyptian architecture. He distinguishes it from them in, in um, one of the essays in Modern Painters, The Nature of the Gothic. And he says, what's so great about the Gothic architecture was that everyone working on the Gothic cathedral 
was able to express their individuality, their imagination, their whimsy, that they could create these gargoyles because they wanted to do so. So you weren't subdued to the overall command of the master architect, that there was a sense in which Gothic architecture enabled a kind of democracy of the imagination and it liberated the craftsperson and, of course, Ruskin's ideas develop into those of the arts and crafts movement developed by Morris. And Ruskin, Morris, Rossetti were all somehow in love with medievalism for the idea, in a kind of radical way, that it escaped the hierarchies of the aristocracy. Um, And what is fascinating about Hardy's own absorption of the Gothic and his own self-presentation in terms of the Gothic is that he likes to figure himself as Sir Tristram and his wife Emma as Isolde. And that is entirely a result of the ways in which the Gothic has permeated Victorian culture and has enabled him in some ways to ignore class hierarchies and present himself in this kind of noble form as the chivalric knight. So though he goes to St. Juliet to meet Emma by train, in fact takes him three trains and then a horse and buggy actually delivers him the last 16 miles to St. Juliet from Launceston. When he writes about it in this poetry, he presents himself as saddling up as if he was a knight and riding there. And there's almost a a kind of freedom that the Gothic enables for him to imagine him as a knight. When I set out for Leoness, a hundred miles away, the rhyme was on the spray and starlight lit my lonesomeness. When I set out for Leoness, a hundred miles away, what would bechance at Leoness while I should sojourn there? No prophet durst declare, nor did the wisest wizard guess what would bechance at Leoness while I should sojourn there. Uh, Leoness was the a medieval name for Cornwall, which was the, where Hardy met his first wife, Emma. And the journey he's commemorating was taken on March the 7th of 1870. And he was sent there to restore St. Juliet Church, uh, a medieval church. And he was working, yes, as a church, a restorer of old Gothic churches. Uh, so Gothic architecture played not only a crucial role in his own self-figuration, but in the relationship, which um, was crucial to his evolution into uh, both a novelist and a poet. Yeah, which he comes back to in A Pair of Blue Eyes and, and kind of church restoration is the sort of, um, is the engine that, that sort of drives the plot of, of that novel. But I suppose it's interesting to perhaps bear in mind this idea of, of how Gothic architecture and a kind of architectural framework was a framework for thinking about poetry and about form. And this idea that you've been talking about of of the kind of freedom within certain strictures. And it feels like that's that's quite an important theme in both the novels and the poetry. Yes. Um, and there are many, many architects in Hardy's work. His first novel, Desperate Remedies, has three young architects, uh, no less. So he, he did like to include architects, uh, especially in his early fiction. And uh, young Stephen Smith of A Pair of Blue Eyes is a young architect. But what Hardy learned from this training as a young Gothic architect, he says time and again in the life, was vital to the kind of poet that he developed into. More than but by the time he's writing the life, he was rather dismissing his fiction as something he'd written just to earn money to keep Emma in the manner to which he was accustomed. But late in life, uh, when he reflected on the sort of poet he'd become, he very, very um, astutely saw the ways in which 
his training as a Gothic architect licensed the extraordinary variety of stanzaic patterns and metrical inventions that you get in the collected poems. He used more different metrical patterns or stanzaic patterns than any other poet ever in English. Um, and he did a lot of research into it. He, would, he writes of researching Latin prosody and trying to include Latin prosody or writes poems in sapphics. So there was a sense in which, like a Gothic architect, he could turn his hand to anything. And he delighted in that. And that sense of freedom and liberation to invent new forms was one of the most potent aspects of his imaginative vitality, um, that he adored the challenge like an architect might adore. Right, this is a weird spot. How can I make best use of this particular material to build a interesting tower or turret or whatever? And in fact, if you look at the collected poems, which run to about 900 pages, the best way to think of them, I think, is as this vast Gothic cathedral with all these different niches in which you can get any manner of different stories from, I don't know, the thoughts of a mongrel who's being drowned by their owner um, who's sent this mongrel out to sea because he hasn't got enough money to buy dog food and you get the mongrel's thoughts to, say, the thoughts of, uh, I know, Edward Gibbon finishing the decline of the Roman Empire. So there's this unbelievable variety that you get in Hardy's collected poems. And he, in a passage in The Life, specifically connects it to his training in what he calls the Gothic art principle. Um, and all the he's attacking the reviewers there, there in this passage who think he should be smoother and less kind of rugged. And he's saying that the Gothic art principle is that the one that dominates his concept of writing poetry because it allows for the principle of spontaneity, exactly as Ruskin uh, had outlined. Um, and you find this principle of spontaneity in mouldings, tracery and such like in Gothic cathedrals. And it results in the unforeseen, that you can't tell what's going to happen. And that sense of surprise, which I think is really crucial to the success of Hardy as a, a popular novelist, um, is also an aspect of his poetry and also of its improvisatory qualities so that it's not constructed ornament as you would get in a classical uh, temple. Um, it is because that's what every Gothic student is taught to avoid constructed ornament as one might avoid the plague. Um, so um, the, the Gothic was not only sort of in the water table of all Victorian culture. And I mean, just as examples of how obsessed they were with medievalism, I can't help um, alluding to, say, the Eglinton Tournament which might interest our listeners, a tournament held in 1839 in which Victorian gentlemen, arist aristocrats, dressed up in, this happened in Scotland, dressed up in knight knightly armour and, uh, uh, and had a kind of jousting competition. In fact, um, it rained terribly that day. And so they went into battle holding lances and umbrellas as well, uh, which rather ruined the effect. Um, but that's an example of how fundamental... Arthurian legends were to certain aspects of Victorian uh, culture. And of course, the notion of the Victorian gentleman was also encoded in this idea of the Knights of the Round Table. Um, so the great sort of um, happenstance in relation to Hardy's life was that when he went on March the 7th, 1870 to St. Juliet, he found that St. Juliet was just three miles from Tintagel, which was where the court of King Arthur was reputed to have been. Uh, was it? Uh, no. <laughs> What's the relationship between Tintagel and Arthurianism? Well, Jethro of Monmouth, um, who is this uh, 12th century writer who's really responsible for the sort of uh, for the for the whole Arthurian stuff. He says that he's using an earlier source, but if he is, we that source does not survive. Um, and he writes this extraordinary 
work that then spawns this great outpouring of Arthurian literature across Europe. I mean, especially in in French as well as in Anglo Latin and 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 in English literature. But he's the the one who first kind of conceives of this Arthurian myth and the idea of Tintagel as the kind of seat of of Arthur. So he during that first um, week that he spent with Emma, they go to Tintagel. Uh, and it's at this moment you can see kind of generating this notion that he is Sir Tristram and she is Isult. So there's kind of, it's, it's a bit like cosplaying as we have these days, <laughs> this kind of adoption of roles which allow them to step out of their actual lives. Hardy at that time was an architect's clerk. Uh, his, he was the son of a mason. Uh, Emma came from a, uh, a family which was, had been quite well-to-do and middle class but had gone down in the world. Her father was alcoholic schizophrenic and uh, had been in Bodmin Asylum on a number of occasions though Emma didn't disclose that during the week uh, when they met but all the poems that he writes and he writes dozens of poems about this celebrated journey that he makes to St Juliet and then on to Tintagel all present him in some kind of heroic way and that was licensed by Victorian Gothic by the, the, the medievalism which permeated the culture and he'd read things like Matthew Arnold's Tristram and Isolt of 1852 and Idols of the King was coming out at this time and we know that Emma and Thomas read Tennyson in the grounds of the rectory where he stayed and uh, Tennyson's Mort d'Arthur was from 1842 or The Lady of Shalott, one of the most famous Victorian poems. So there's ways in which he was able to plug into this medievalism and that affected not only his sense of himself, his sense of possibility, but the entire, I would suggest, the entire kind of scope and range of his career. So that vision of him and Emma, you know, from this moment in 1870, his configuration of that relationship as one between Tristan and Isolde or, or as part of a kind of quest, is that something that happens after she's dead when we have this great outpouring of poetry in 1912? Or is it something that he consistently imagines the whole way through his sort of poetic career from that point onwards? Well, it's interesting that in A Pair of Blue Eyes itself, we have the character Elfrida, who is very clearly modelled on Emma, who writes a novel. And it's a novel about the Middle Ages. And it's called... It's called The Court of King Arthur's Castle, A Romance of Leoness. So on one hand, Hardy is, in that, he, he is satirising this Victorian obsession with the Arthurian, that this novel we are made to believe is not very good, and her second suitor, Henry well, Knight... Well, we don't know that it's not very good. Henry Knight writes a dastardly review of it. OK, I take it, I take it. <laughs> I take that back, but it was one of many um, sort of romance fiction set in the Arthurian period and uh, certainly Knight is withering about it and Elfrida sort of gives way on that doesn't she she sort of says she doesn't stand up for her novel very vociferously no she doesn't but uh, she's a I mean she's a sort of delicate creature and he's very forceful I mean he is the kind of patron saint of mansplaining I would say um. <laughs> well it's interesting that he calls her, him knight this person who is the patron saint of mansplaining knight which does connect him with this kind of chivalric notion doesn't it yeah I mean he's he's clearly kind of exposing the sort of the underbelly of the as it were the chivalric culture sort of satirizing this medieval or the, the Victorian notion of the Middle Ages as an age of kind of chivalry yeah. 
Yes, the most famous scene in the episode has Henry Knight slipping off the nameless cliff, as it's called in a pair of blue eyes, um, and falling down into the sea, gripping onto some tussocks of grass. That's all that prevents him from plunging to his death on Beanie Cliff, uh, which was the original of the nameless cliff. And he is saved by Elfrida. So rather than the knight saving the damsel in distress, the damsel saves uh, knight, the knight who is in distress, uh, and in the most extraordinary of ways. Essentially with her knickers. <laughs> she peels off her, 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 her underclothes, makes a rope from them, uh, and throws the rope to knight, who is able to clamber up. And then he clasps her, and she's shivering because she's just got her dress and it's, on. And it's raining. And so it's essentially a wet T-shirt competition. And <laughs> there is this whole description of, of how tightly, you know, her scandalizing outer garments are hugging her form. Um, and then they embrace each other, although it's a sort of chaste embrace. It is a chaste embrace, but she does fall. This is the climactic moment at which she falls desperately in love with him. And it doesn't work out well because like the middle class chivalric Victorian gentleman or middle upper class chivalric Victorian gentleman, like Angel Clare, who is a sort of descendant of Knight, he is obsessed with purity. And Hardy very much wasn't obsessed with purity or in his writings is always most famously in Tess, champions the life of a fallen woman. And Knight will only marry Elfrida if he can be sure that she has never even been kissed. And of course, it turns out that he finds out that his protégé, uh, young Stephen Smith, who is much younger than Knight, has had a kind of romance with Elfrida before, and they've actually eloped for a night, but changed their minds. They get to London and then get the early train back to Plymouth. So, Which um, is a yeah. great, great mixture of that kind of medieval and modern that you were talking about earlier because the elopement is something that happens on, on trains and it's all about the kind of drama of it is all about kind of changing platforms at Paddington Station to get the, the kind of westerly train back again. So it, as you say, sort of elopement sounds like this, again, like this sort of great romantic quest, but actually it's all enacted in the kind of fog and smoke of, of Paddington, which we can imagine was a sort of pretty dirty, modern kind of a place. Yeah, and Hardy's own um, courtship of, of Emma was conducted with through the post and through the railway system. <laughs> so that mixture, I think that is a really interesting point in relation to this topic. The ways in which modernity and the medieval are kind of fused in Hardy and this weird taboo about purity becomes the kind of the dominant uh, driver of the novel's tragic ending. Yeah, so he has a, in some senses quite a kind of a modern idea of Elfrida and she is this kind of wonderfully spirited heroine who you know who likes to do things her own way and she goes out riding on her own without an attendant and all of these kinds of things but is also hampered by these kind of I suppose rather medieval notions of of sexual purity. The London Review of Books has a new subscription podcast called Close Readings. The Odyssey is an extraordinarily sophisticated take on what a Nostos narrative is. Listen to leading critics explore some of the great works of literature. The poet of Beowulf says that was a good king, that was God Kooning, which we can decide whether we take that straight or ironically. Enjoy an introductory grounding like no other from Europe's leading literary journal. I found reading him when I came across him in my early 20s the most exhilarating poetic experience of my life. And rereading it for this session today, I'm afraid I was in tears. Find Close Readings wherever you get your podcasts. 
But we should talk a little bit more, I think, about architecture specifically in relation to A Pair of Blue Eyes because th- there's this kind of wonderful preface to the novel. Yeah, it's interesting that when Hardy writes a preface for A Pair of Blue Eyes in an 1895 edition of all his Wessex novels, um, he sort of directly addresses the issue of church restoration. And there were kind of different views on this. Say the French Violet le Duc felt that you should restore Gothic, uh, Gothic architecture uh, absolutely, and um, uh, make it look brand new, so to speak. Uh, whereas Hardy came to feel that all the, the the Victorian Gothic revival, fine when it's building new Victorian Gothic churches, and there were loads and loads built, but Hardy felt guilty about the extent to which he had uh, changed the fabric of, say, St. Juliet, which was falling down, though. It was in a terrible state when he got there in March of 1817. There were birds roosting in it. The bells were in the, the graveyard. In fact, somebody died the day after he arrived there and, and they signaled, well, he had a funeral and they signalled the tolling bells by a man lifting up the clapper of the bell on its side and letting it clang. So clearly it was in danger. But he doesn't give up architecture until uh, 1872 when he signs a contract to write A Pair of Blue Eyes. And he realises that he is now at the, you know, on the banks of the Rubicon and he has to choose. And with Emma's, um, at Emma's kind of urging, he chooses literature and he writes this wonderful novel, A Pair of Blue Eyes. I mean, you're a great fan of it, aren't you? I, I mean, I love it. I... And, and am I right in saying your daughter is called Elfrida? She is. <laughs> that's that's true love. But it's it's spelt differently. It is, in fact, the medieval Elfrida. But... Okay, so it is a medieval name then. Do you think there's something deliberate in that? Uh, yes, it's definitely a medieval name. I mean, it comes from the Old English Elfthrith, which means elf strength. Um, and then that gets trained changed in Middle English to Elfrida. But I, I don't know where, where Hardy got it from. I and mean, there was a sort of revival of these kinds of medieval names in the, in the 19th and 20th century. But it's interesting what you were saying about Elfrida's sort of free-spiritedness, because I think, I think reading Hardy doesn't make the feminist heart sing. Would that be fair to say? Well, he, he, he has been, um, was celebrated by many women readers for offering particularly uh, vivid and uh, exhilarating depictions of women who weren't the angel in the house, to use the Coventry Patmore phrase, um, and that it's true that, particularly in his early fiction, characters such as Elfrida, Bathsheba, because I say the same is true of Tess, many of his leading uh, female protagonists uh, start out with an astonishing kind of exuberance and vitality and imaginative freedom, which is uh, uplifting. And in the course of the novel, that gets um, chastised in various ways. He embroils them in plots. Grace Melbury would be another example from The Woodlanders. They get embroiled in plots that effectively limit them. Uh, and that is a fairly standard Victorian fictional trajectory. You think of Henry James's portrait of a lady, something very similar happens. So it is interesting that these male novelists find in their initial depictions of these women all kinds of imaginative possibilities which excite them. And yet the novel, and this you could call this realism, I don't know what you want to call it, but you can, in relation to the possibilities for women of the age, by the end they are often muted or dead uh, or humbled or humiliated in various ways. Uh, And a lot of the pathos or tragedy uh, of the, these novels comes from this the stories of of the female heroines. Yeah, but I think what's perhaps somewhat troubling is that there's we almost feel as though it serves these women right for trying to live beyond the bounds of social convention. And 
There's also quite a sort of troubling moment in A Pair of Blue Eyes where we have this idea that Hardy or the narrator says that that Harry Knight, who is this dastardly man, um, is a, is a very kind of forceful character, and that's what Elfrida loves. You know, Elfrida wants actually a man who will kind of impose his will on her, and so there's sort of something kind of sad in this depiction of women. I want to find that section. Hang on. Here we go. Elfrida had her sex's love of sheer force in a man, however ill-directed. And at that critical juncture in London, Stephen's only chance of retaining the ascendancy over her that his face and not his parts had acquired for him would have been by doing what, for one thing, he was too youthful to undertake. That was dragging her by the wrist to the rails of some altar and preemptorily marrying her. I mean, I just find that so sad that that's Hardy's idea, that that's what Elfrida, this kind of spirited young woman, that actually that's what she wants, is kind of sheer force. I, I'm not sure in context it, it, can, it can stand as a, an overall sense of, of Hardy's relationship or concept of that women want a strong man. Stephen, I think, models a kind of passivity that was in Hardy, and Hardy was very conscious of his own passivity, his inability to operate exactly in the way in which Stephen... Uh, does operate, or doesn't operate at that particular moment. There's a conflict in Hardy between these rather passive, sensitive men that you get in his fiction, and Stephen as an example of that, and these much more forceful, worldly men. And it's, it's a kind of triangulation of his own identity, or a division within his own identity. And they are in the the novel works because he's not a mix. St- neither Stephen nor Knight are a mixture of Knight and Stephen. Stephen is passive, and Knight is kind of peremptory to use the the term that he uses uh, there. But I think in terms of the the larger picture, it the question is to what extent is Hardy writing realist fiction? Um, there's a telling moment in the life in which he talks about thinking of writing a version of Romeo and Juliet in which Romeo and Juliet are kept apart by their families and their love dies. And that's a far more likely thing to happen (laughs) than what does happen. So the extent to which Hardy felt obliged to present narratives that accorded with his own sense of disappointment, disillusionment, nearly all of his novels uh, build to some kind of climactic moment of disillusionment was hardwired, I suppose, into his sense of the way life worked. Which is perhaps a good place to introduce the idea of Hardy's marriage, which was, I suppose it would be fair to say, something of a disappointment during Emma's life. But it became this kind of locus of of richly recalled emotion after she died. Yes, it started off without the blessing of either family. So Jemima Hardy, Hardy's mother, felt that he was throwing himself away on an um, indigent member of, of the middle classes who had no dowry but would be quite expensive to keep. And they were very much against... She was clearly very much against the marriage. And all we know about John Attersall Gifford's uh, response to it comes to us through Florence. But what it seems happened is that Hardy had some proofs of one of the instalments of A Pair of Blue Eyes sent to Curland House, where John Attersall Gifford lived, in the hope that John Attersall Gifford would see these and see that, that Emma was wanting to get engaged to a professional man of letters. 
and would accept Hardy as a possible suitor for his daughter. But what we learn, don't know exactly what happened, but Gifford apparently later called Hardy that low-born churl who dared to marry into my family. And there was no contact between Hardy and Emma's parents after, nor indeed much from Emma with her parents. So she had thrown in her lot with Hardy to an extraordinarily rather dangerous extent, uh, especially when they moved back to Dorchester in 1884 or 1883. But they start building Max Gate, which was the house that he designed in red brick. It's a kind of Victorian red brick villa, which is finished in 1885. And she's basically on his territory. And she never has happy relations with Hardy's parents or siblings. And uh, she was rather haughty. I mean, she was known as Lady Emma by some people who would come to visit. And she she says in some letter that a, a writer should never, who has low-born relations, should never go and return to live in v- their vicinity. So there was a lot of conflict between them. And their marriage didn't, he doesn't date their marriage as souring until about six or seven years into it. In fact, when they're living in London, uh, in Tooting, and there they, they lose the glory of their early days. And especially after they moved back to Dorchester and he built Max Gate. But it's interestingly, in a poem called The Spell of the Rose, written after she died, he figures the building of Max Gate as like a sort of Victorian knight building a manor for his uh, beloved. With turrets and towers. We should probably read some. I mean to build a hall anon and shape two turrets there and a broad, newelled stair and a cool well for crystal water Yes, I will build a hall anon. Plant roses love shall feed upon, and apple trees, and pear. He set to build the manor hall, and shaped the turrets there, and the broad, newelled stair, and the cool well for crystal water. He built for me that manor hall, and planted many trees withal, but no rose anywhere. And as he planted never a rose, that bears the flower of love. Though other flowers throve, some heart-bane moved our souls to sever, since he had planted never a rose, and misconceits raised horrid shows, and agonies came thereof. I mean, he's referring to the romance of the rose, isn't he, in some ways, which was this medieval poem in which uh, well, tell me about the romance of the rose. Uh, well, it's a, it's a poem written by two different people. It was kind of continued by someone else, and it's a it's a poem in French, and it was tremendously popular and you know copied and and reconfigured throughout the Middle Ages. Well, it's interesting that Hardy transforms as he transforms his journey to St. Juliet in March uh, of 1870 into Tristram riding to Leoness, so to speak. Here he transforms the building of Max Gate, again, a very kind of modern um, a modern house uh, into a kind of into a medieval. He medievalizes it um, rather in the way in which um, you know, Victorian painters were always were always painting medieval scenes, and so he, he's uh, reconfiguring it as some kind of ideal love which has been betrayed by the by the architect. One slightly kind of gothic element was the uh, way in which Emma for the last 10 years of their marriage, um, lived mainly in an attic above his study. Our listeners will know about Jane Eyre and the mad woman in the attic, so to speak. But 
the relationship between Hardy and Emma got s- s- deteriorated to such an extent that they often wouldn't um, see each other much each day and she would spend her time in her boudoir, as she called it, her two rooms, her attic above his study, and he'd be below, often writing poems about other women that he'd met in London and fancied. So there was a sense in which... Which, which <laughs> kind of fascinatingly... Hardy wrote in Far From the Madding Crowd this sort of moment when there is the estrangement between Bathsheba Everdeen and Sergeant Troy and she takes herself off to an attic and you know and, and is and is tended by her maid Liddy and kind of shuts herself off. So it's kind of quite weird in a way that Hardy sort of imagined that and then that that was his life later on. And he was the architect who built the attic, right. who designed the attic. So there's a sense, uh, yes, in which his life and his fiction do uh, interpenetrate in various distressing ways. Um, and he fell in love with or met someone called Florence Dugdale in 1906. She came to visit him. She was an admirer. And she was 38 years younger than, than Hardy and Emma. And they had various holidays together without Emma knowing. I'm fairly sure it, it was a chaste relationship. Uh, of course, one can never know. But by 1910, Hardy wanted... Florence to have a sort of larger role in his life uh, and his relations with Emma were very bad and he engineered this meeting between Florence and Emma at the her the, the Lyceum Club in London and Emma was giving a paper and she got her papers mixed up and Florence rushed to the rescue and she uh, and Emma took to her greatly and she was very very fond of Florence and she requisitioned Florence to type up her own poems and stories and try and get these published in papers um, Florence had a typewriter and work, had worked as a kind of secretary so a very strong bond between Florence and Emma which sort of delighted Hardy and it's Emma who invites Florence down to Max Gate and for a period in 1910 we have what is more or less a menage a trois and I'm mentioning this because it leads into the whole kind of um, uh, purpose of the famous tragedy of the Queen of Cornwall which has Tristram and two Isolts Isolt the Fair and Isolt the White-Handed who are modelled on Isolt the Fair is Emma and Isolt the White-Handed is Florence in various ways. So in 1910, we have this uh, Florence spending you know, many weeks at Max Gate, but divisions between Emma and Hardy are quite extreme at this point. And it all boils over on Christmas Day when um, uh, of 1910, when Hardy wants Florence to come with him to visit his siblings. And Emma says, no, they will poison you against me. And Thomas and Emma have a a huge row. Emma goes up to her attic to write her memoirs. Hardy goes off to visit his siblings. Florence is left alone in Max Gate saying, I will never come here again. (laughs) I will never spend Christmas here again, not knowing that that's where she would end up spending the next 28 years of her, her life, roughly. But in a very weird way, after Emma dies, Hardy falls in love with her all over again. And she becomes a kind of ghostly rival to Florence, which is very, very distressing for Florence, whom whom Hardy marries in January of 1914. And she finds herself coping with this this dead rival. Uh, Hardy is not only writing the poems of 1912-13 about her, but many, many more, over 130, 40, 50 poems, which have kind of Emma aspects to them, all written after Emma had died, which follow her life from her kind of birth in Plymouth through to her death uh, in Max Gate and her burial in Stinsford Churchyard. So this odd kind of necromancy, you might say, or necromantic relationship that Hardy has with Emma after she has died. And Florence writes quite often to Edward Clodd saying, I can't cope being in this 
competing with this dead saint, um, my latest spousal saint. Um, she she caustically quotes from Milton's sonnet about his dead wife. And not only does Hardy write poems such as the Wistful Lady, which which sort of have a ghostly woman tormenting her successor. But he makes Florence visit the places which were sacred to him because he'd spent time there with Emma. They go to Sturminster Newton, where he and Emma lived um, in 1876 to 1878, and he writes poems overlooking the River Stour. Um, and he also makes her go back to St Juliet in 1916, to see a marble tablet that Hardy has had erected in St. Juliet Church, commemorating Emma's residence in the rectory. And, of course, they go to Tintagel. And Florence writes to Edward Clodd that this has given Hardy the seed for his Tintagel poem, but actually emerges as this very weird play. I mean, you read it quite recently. Would you agree that it's weird? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of wonderful and weird at the same time you suggested I read it. And I think a bit of context is sort of helpful here because it's... It's, he finishes it in 1923, but he sort of started work on it in, in 1916. I think I'm right about that. Yeah. So during the First World War and, you know, he, he finishes it sort of a little over four years before he dies. And when you think about the kind of broader context here, I mean, this is not my period, but, but 1923, I mean... The Wasteland and Ulysses are both published in 1922. I mean, these great kind of works of, of modernism. And this is this, it's like something kind of held in amber. It's this weird, nostalgic medievalism. The, the sound of it, it has this kind of Shakespearean tinge. You know, he uses this iambic pentameter and he's kind of using a sort of sentence structure that sounds very kind of Elizabethan. And he's using this medieval kind of backdrop. And he describes it as a mummer's play. So again this this kind of victorian idea of what or you know in this case early 20th century idea of of what medieval drama was like and it seems to sit so kind of strangely with its larger literary context it's also partly a greek tragedy and it's about tristram and isolde and king mark so it, it is fusing together lots of different sorts of things i would point out though that in the wasteland you have got a lot of medieval uh, grail imagery you know got Sir Galahad riding to Chapel Perilous. So Arthurianism was no, by no means dead for someone like Eliot. But I would say there is a very big difference between The Wasteland and the famous tragedy of the Queen of Cornwall, which is in that mode which modern readers of Hardy don't much like. The Dynasts is written like this. But let's read a bit to give our readers, the, uh, our listeners, the sense of what um, Hardy is up to. Um, the actual story is the same, is, is the standard Tristram and Isolt one, that Tristram and Isolt... He goes to Ireland to bring her back to marry King Mark. She's given a love potion, which they inadvertently quaff, to use his favourite phrase, uh, on the way back from Ireland to Cornwall. So they fall in love rather than King Mark and Isolt falling in love. But he, um, uh, well, it explains it in this passage, he ends up marrying another Isolt. <laughs> Uh, called Isolt the White-Handed because Isolt the Fair is married to King Mark. And in this, the, 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 the scenario devised by Hardy, he arrives in the palace as a wandering minstrel. Uh, and I think that is important. Hardy was a poet. And so Hardy is figuring himself as Trin Tristram the minstrel. And he is now negotiating between these two Isolts, rather as he is negotiating his life between dead Emma and living Florence. And it seems to be reenacting that ménage à trois, which had happened on a temporary basis in Max Gate in 1910. Well, this scene is scene 11, in which um, uh, Tristram and Queen Isolt have their kind of reunion 
uh, you play Isolde, say, and I'll play Tristram. Are you sure it shouldn't be the other way around? I think we'll stick with this. <laughs> You've come again. You've come again, dear love. To be once more with my Isult the Fair, he embraces the Queen, though not yet what I was in strength and stay, yet told have I been by Sir Lancelot to wear me of King Mark, King Fox, he calls him, whom I'd have pitied, though he would not yield thee, nor let you loose on learning our dire need of freedom for our bliss, which came to us, not of fore-aim or falseness, but by spell of love-drink, ministered by hand unseen. Knowing as much, he swore he would not slay thee, but Lancelot told him no man could believe him, whereat he answered, Anyhow, she's mine. It's true, I fear. He cannot be believed. Yet, Tristram, would my husband were but all. Had you not wedded her, my namesake, oh, we could have steered around this other rock. Trust me, we could. Why did you do it? Why? Triumph did he when I first learnt of that, and lewdly laughed to see me shaken so. I mean, the language itself is wonderful. He's using all of these, a lot of kind of local words. So, for example, he describes a puffin as a sea nath. Um, and and you, you get that sense of Hardy as this kind of linguistic magpie who who is kind of borrowing terms from, you know, local dialect. And, and also, I mean, several times I was reading this and I came across a word I didn't know and I looked it up in the in the OED and, you know, the last recorded usage is about, 50 years before this or something like that. So clearly he's using words that are really out of date and, and I don't know where he's getting them from. But there's a terrific kind of richness to this language. But he also is, you know, he's clearly kind of mimicking the sort of patterns and the sound of medieval verse. I mean, particularly the alliterative pattern of medieval verse. I mean, this is a lovely line. The self-sown pangs of prying ere she sailed. You know, this wonderful repetition of the S's and the P's there. Um, and you just get that again and again. And it's it's really quite a lovely thing, although I'm not sure it would work all that brilliantly on stage. No, um, and I don't think it has been performed very often, though. The Hardy Society... We should, we should revive it, Mark. ...has done it. Certainly, I mean, it, was, it, it has never been republished since the 1923 edition by Macmillan, which has... Um, an engraving on the cover of Tintagel by Hardy. And I think what it was so important to him because it connected his him back to March of 19, 1870 when he first met Emma. And he writes to Alfred Noyes, um, who, you know, the poet who did The Highwayman. The Highwayman comes riding. Riding, riding, riding. Yes, uh, and he reviewed it rather lukewarmly uh, in the Evening Standard, I think. And Hardy said, Hardy sort of brooded uh, wrote back and said, 53 years in the making, this poem, going back to from 1870 to 1923, and that this was his last tribute to Emma. And it takes this Arthurian form uh, because of the associations of Tintagel, where he met her. And this probably is the last throw of the Arthurian dice, isn't it, in English literature? I know most people see the chivalric ideal that derived from Victorian medievalism as, it, as expiring in the trenches of the 1914-18 war. And the whole notion of 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 England's um, imperial destiny, as underwritten by Arthurian myth, has pretty much gone by the time this comes out. So, as you say, it is in amber. It is a weird, but Hardy is like that. One of the things that I like about him so much was his unashamed to be weirdness yeah. aspect of him. 
uh, that he didn't care what people felt. And in terms of his own sense of imaginative vitality, he would follow whatever seemed to be working for him. So he is a kind of, um, or you can almost call him an archaeologist, a linguistic archaeologist, uh, resurrecting these vanished words in a way that someone like Hopkins also did in the poetry that he writes. He also wanted an Anglo-Saxon language that somehow um, recovered a connection to the vitality of the, the sinews of Englishness as it had developed over the centuries against Latinate constructions. And uh, Hardy has a similar notion of uh, of an Englishness instinct in the language, although it's not a language that anyone speaks, <laughs> as our listeners could tell from the bit we read. I mean, we should say that the, the play ends in tragedy, that King Mark discovers Tristram, stabs him in the back. Isult then grabs a sword and stabs King Mark and kills him. And then Isult the Fair, this is, uh, hurls herself into the sea and even, perhaps even more touching, her dog... (laughs) Or Bratchet. The Bratchet, yes. The Bratchet is a key is a key figure right from the very beginning. We we know that King Mark is a dastardly sort because he kicks the Bratchet on stage um, in the opening scenes. Yes, and so we are left with Isult the White Handed, which is what exactly exactly what happened in nineteen twenty eight. Florence was left alone. Hardy was dead, Emma was dead. King Mark, well, <laughs> there was no King Mark figure. But uh, like Isolt the White-Handed, Florence was left alone with the legacy uh, of Hardy. And on the medieval thing, and maybe we should finish with this, there's an odd medieval aspect to his two funerals. Do you know about this? Yes, that his heart was buried in a separate place. Yes, his heart was buried in Stinsford, while his body was actually taken to Woking, where it was cremated, and his ashes interred in Westminster Abbey. And this... The the medieval aspect to this is that Florence knew that Hardy wanted to be buried in Stinsford, but she was persuaded by uh, her fellow executor, Sidney Cockrell, and also J.M. Barry, that because he was the most famous writer on the planet, more or less at this point, that he should have a state burial, more or less, in Westminster Abbey. Uh, And there was huge division. Florence, in a terrible pickle over this, eventually agrees to Sidney Cockrell's insistence that Hardy get the grand burial in Westminster Abbey. But the local vicar, who's interested in medieval legends, says, well, in the olden days, they would often take the heart out of the body uh, and persuades Florence to get a surgeon round to remove the heart from Hardy's body. Uh, He takes it home in a biscuit tin. There were rumours in Dorchester that the cat ate it and they they buried the cat's heart instead. And the heart is buried in Stinsford, next to Emma with Florence on the other side. Well, she's not there yet, but she will be. She kn- And she knows she will be. And the body is cremated at Woking and there's this huge ceremony at Westminster Abbey. But someone like Edmund Goss called it a, you know, a medieval practice. Yeah. So in an odd sort of way, <laughs> medievalism does rear its its peculiar head, even in this very strange final act of Hardy's life. Mm. And it's kind of interesting that that medieval practice the idea of it was that you would, as it were, get twice the the salvific. Oh, is that why? Um, oh. Bung for your intercessory buck because you separated out parts of the body and you had that buried in one place, and then prayers would be said over that bit of the body, and then another bit of the body would be buried elsewhere. Prayers would be said there. So the idea of the more masses were said over your body, then the better chance you got of you know getting out of purgatory and ascending to heaven. 
Well, how much is that one of life's little ironies that Hardy, who doesn't believe, (laughs) ends up having this medieval double shot at intercessory prayers? Mark, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Mary. A real, real pleasure. As I said earlier, you can hear more of Mark and Seamus Perry in their series, The Long and Short, which is part of the LRB's Close Reading subscription, where you can also hear more of me with Irina Dumitrescu in our series, Medieval Beginnings. Go to lrb.me slash close readings or find a link in the description for this episode. I hope you'll join us there as we do battle with dragons, enter small enclosed anchor holds and worry about magical weasels.